How's it going, ladies and gentlemen? Welcome to Liberty After Dark. I'm coming to you guys in post really quick just because I totally forgot to do a normal intro for this episode. Uh, we were just talking on the live stream before I just got into it. So for those of you who don't know, this episode is all about free will. If you couldn't tell from the title, that means I picked a sucky title. And uh, it's going to be really deep. It's going to be a lot of philosophy, ethics, no news, no real politics today, none of that. We're just going to talk about philosophy. We're going to talk about free will. We're going to talk about consciousness. And we're going to have a, have a good learning learning time here. I learn things. You guys can learn some things. Also, there's just a really quick blurb in the beginning. It's a question I get all the time and like emails and stuff like that. So I figured I would just go ahead and include it in this final recording. Normally, this is something I would cut out for the podcasts and just have for the live viewers, but you know, here it is. So I won't hold you anymore. Please enjoy the show. Now, one of the reasons why I was trying to hold off a little bit is because what we're going to talk about today gets pretty hairy, pretty quick. Honestly, there is quite a bit of controversy in the topic, uh, which we're going to be talking about consciousness. We're going to talk about free will. We're going to be talking about a lot of a lot of heavy stuff today and not heavy in the sense that it's necessarily bad in any sort of way, only that it is very it's complicated. It's not intuitive in a lot of situations and a lot of our intuitions on things like consciousness, free will and whatnot uh, are, are honestly kind of detrimental to our understanding of the world. And we'll get into all about intuitions. Uh, what's your response when people say it's the price we pay to live in a civilized society? Uh, it's not a voluntary interactions. If you're, if you're talking about taxation real quick, Chad, just to make sure before we get rolling into all this, what's your response to that? My response is typically that it's not that voluntary interactions happen outside of, of government every single day that. 99% of your interactions with a human being are not government involved or related. And that if the government disappeared tomorrow, the only thing that would change is that it would all switch over to private hands. Now, obviously there's a little bit of nuance to that, that I'm, I'm skipping over for the sake of brevity and the response. But if I really wanted to dig into it, you know, you talk about the privatization of utilities and stuff like that, which they pretty much are already. If you really think about it, maybe besides like water and stuff like that. But all of that can also be privatized or through a public voluntary fund if you wanted to pay into that as well. Nothing says you can't come together and, and voluntarily commit a certain amount of your, your income to doing that. The only thing is, is that uh, it's, it's actually a mark of an uncivilized society. Taxation is the mark of an uncivilized society because it, it promotes banditry and theft for the welfare of the greater good which creates a collectivist mentality and it's very tr tribalist it breeds nationalism it's just not it's not what you imagine when you think of like the independent future human being so that's basically would be my easy way of responding to that um there, like i said there's a, well there's a lot of different angles you can tackle that one thing but you know you could you could suggest that it it's not necessary for it um it's not even the case that it's true and there's plenty of other reading if you want to go out there and look for people who specifically answered this question and they all have their own way of doing so. So that's just throwing that out there. Um, cool, cool. All right. No problem, man. Uh, so back to where it was. So we're going to be talking about consciousness, free will, blah, blah, blah. I already went all over, the, over all that. I would love to have interaction with the comments. And I'd also like to put out a disclaimer. I'm not a neuroscientist. I'm a guy who really likes philosophy, ethics, and that's that's how I got here. 
That's what I do a lot in my free time is read and think, as lame as that sounds. I'm not trying to pretend to be some kind of pseudo-intellectual. I just enjoy them from the bottom of my heart. And uh, so when things like these come up, I like to talk about them. I like to share them because I'm not in a position right now where I haven't really necessarily made up my mind one way or another. And you'll kind of understand what I mean as I keep going because I think some of these topics that I'm going to kind of disclose today or kind of reveal what I've learned and have this discussion about are more questions than they are answers, which may bug some people. But I feel like that's the really the only way that we can approach this topic without either, you know, me trying to sound more official than I am or more positive than I am, which I'm not trying to do to you guys. I just want to talk about this or that I'm, I'm going to come off as being just an idiot because it'll be some idea that somebody doesn't agree with. And then not that that necessarily is an issue. Plenty of people think I'm dumb, but the fact that um, that's not my objective today. My objective is not to really even change anybody's mind to, to one side or another, or a, one particular argument or another, only to expand our, all of our minds collectively, all of us, that, that dirty word, the collective. So, so the first thing that we have to ask ourselves if we're going to frame this whole conversation around what is the importance of defining and understanding ideas like consciousness and free will inside of the liberty movement that we are a part of, we have to first, we have to define a couple terms. And what inspired this entire conversation we're having today is, and I'm very sorry, I should have had this name up in front of me. It has a subtitle that I always forget. Um, it's called conscious. There we go. A brief guide to the fundamental mystery of the mind by Anaka Harris. And just for those of you who don't know, that is Sam Harris, the very well-known podcaster and just thinker neuroscientist's wife. And she is, uh, she wrote this book as someone who's been studying things like consciousness and free will and stuff like that for for quite a while, who's been doing a lot of research into it, who has been a part of, of very different views and angles and, and presuppositions and whatnot inside of that world. So she wrote this again as like a kind of a fundamental guide and also to crack the lid off of a couple of misnomers that are pretty common within us as people. And some of them I didn't even realize I was holding until after I had started reading through the book. So, hey, John, what's up, man? So we're going to get through a lot of stuff like that today. Probably not as much as in the book. I would hope, hopefully, she puts, she's obviously, she's a professional. She does this kind of stuff for a living. I would highly recommend you go out there and read that book if you're still interested in this topic after we finish the show. Um, or even if you don't care about what I'm saying and you just want to learn straight from the horse's mouth, pretty much, I would highly recommend going out there and reading that book. Whenever we sit down and we, we talk about this kind of stuff, we fall into a lot of traps. And this kind of gets back to what I was just talking about with the whole intuitions and presuppositions and whatnot, is that when we're talking about things like free will, and we're talking about things like consciousness, not only do most of us not have a good definition of it, but we don't really understand what's happening. And that's true of a large majority of the population. And there are still today even philosophers and, and scientists who disagree on what those things actually are. So it's difficult to come to like a uniform consensus about a topic. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you my best 
best way of looking at it. And I think the most appropriate way of starting this conversation is with consciousness. Because if we can't, I mean, if we can agree here and now that the only way that an object can have free will is with some kind of consciousness. You know, let's just make that, let's put free will to the side for a second. What, whatever the nuances and stipulations are about that, let's just push that off the side. Let's say that, okay, well, I am, all, it's certain that what if free will as we understand it to exist in like the modern intuitive way cannot exist outside of a conscious being because it requires some form of consciousness to have that free will uh, to whatever extent that may be, which then can lead into a lot of interesting situations. So consciousness is essentially, if you were to think about like how, what is consciousness? What, how, what is the easiest way to think about it? It is what it is like, if you can think about what it is like to be something that is a demonstration of a certain level of consciousness. What's up, man? How's it going? If you can, if you can make those sort of things happen, then pretty much anything is, is open, is open to your, to your mind at that point. If you can sit back and say, what is it like to be a bat? And you think about what it means to travel via echolocation. Now, you may not understand what that feels like, but you can understand that there's a sensation there. There's some sort of feedback, input, decision-making process of some kind going on there. That's a show of consciousness as opposed to what is it like to be a chair, which is the very common example. The, the, the phrase, what is it like to be a bat, is a very common one because that was what was used as the comparison uh, to show a, an abstract form of consciousness that we could still we could still into it as this is a conscious thing. So there we go. That's pretty much the, the the basis way of thinking about what consciousness is. But if you start to get a little bit lower, we start to run into issues with that. So it's like, what is it like to be a bat? Okay, we can kind of think about that flying around. You know, you've still got wings. You have to you've echolocation. Okay, let's get let's get a little bit smaller. What is it like to be a, uh, uh, you know, a mouse? Okay, that one's that one's not even that bad, really. Honestly, you got little feet, you get food, you get you're hungry, you want to find shelter. You know, you can think about a decision making process that goes on inside of a rat or a mouse or something like that. And then if, but if we start getting smaller from there, like, what is it like to be a worm? So now we're starting to get into to creatures that don't even have a central nervous system. So you know, what is it like to be an earthworm? Well, I mean, you could imagine that the same fundamental characteristics of being a, a living thing exist. And, you know, they may not have very effective eyes, but again, we're talking about abstracts, forms of experience here. So they're not going to be a one-to-one -one comparison with what we have right now. So if, if we can imagine what it's like to be in a dark tunnel, wriggling around, eating what's in front of you, then you can understand what it's like to, in a sense, be a worm. So maybe we could intuit that to to whatever capacity worms can subject a limited form of consciousness of self-awareness of, 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 of an existence and perception of self and environment experience is another common way of putting it what's up jeffrey how's it going man then from there we can try to go even a little bit further is it like anything to be an ant sure is it like anything to be the little aphid that sits on the leaf Potentially, it's the same kind of process going on. Is it like anything to be a protozoa? Let's go even further. 
Now, this is where you start getting into really big concerns as far as the whole idea of consciousness is concerned. But we have the same fundamental characteristics, but we're limiting the amount of input and data into the system. So some people say without an overall uh, grasp on the, the global scale of, of information and data, that it is very difficult for people to uh, even even try to understand could a protozoa of some sort be consciousness or be conscious in any way? And this is, you know, I understand very much. I, I was in the same position not too long ago, but there is an argument to be made that using the same sort of logic you can into it. Okay. This thing has life driving desires, just like we do. It has, a need to make decisions to avoid predators. It has an optical sensory unit, which it can take in light. It can detect things in front of it. It can determine the size, the overall shape. It can even determine if something's going to be able to kill it or if it's food. That's a decision, right, that it has to make. Is this food? Am I hungry? Do I want to expend the energy to go get it? Is this thing going to kill me? Where do I run? Now, it's difficult to determine whether something like a protozoa is doing everything entirely on random, but this is when we have to ask ourselves, like, how far do we want to go down this rabbit hole? Because you can li literally go as far as you want with this. So, like, let's just assume for a second, you know, whether you agree to this or not, that whatever base level form of consciousness that a protozoa might have, let's go one step further. Does a cell, does a blood cell in your body that's just a little single cellular organism that doesn't even interact in its own outside of you have a consciousness of some sort? Does it experience anything? Could it be like something to be a blood cell? And really, like, when we get to this point is where we hit pretty much rock bottom. Everything you go down from here, I think, is pretty much the same conversation, but it just gets even more ridiculous. Because from blood cell, then you go to things like virus, which isn't even a self-sufficient organism, which gets a little hairy, because then you get out of the side of the traditional definition of life. And then you go a step down from that. Is it anything to be a DNA? Or to be a protein? And then, is it anything to be a carbon atom? That is definitely when I start to think that we 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 run into some. All right, we gotta we gotta hold the brakes here because you know the the idea of a single atom containing a consciousness is definitely an extremely panpsychic one, which we'll get a little bit into panpsychism. But I'm sort of introducing this idea of consciousness to lead, leading up to the conversation on that, and I I don't subscribe to necessarily any idea that individual carbon atoms or even smaller corks and gluons and all of those things are capable of some form of consciousness. But again, using the original criteria that we set up for like, what is it like to be a bat? You can ask the question, what is it like to be a red blood cell? What is it like to be a virus? And it may not be an experience that we as humans can understand, but you can also understand there is to some extent a there is a, uh, a fundamental drive for life in, its, in whatever sense you may – of self-preservation. There is a input of information into a system. There is an, an output of that information in the form of a response to the environment, scenario, whatever that may be. Whether we see that as an automated response or whether we see – and this we're getting a little bit into free will here. Sorry. These, that's why I wanted to cover these together because they kind of crisscross. Whether we see all of the interactions of all conscious beings as just being 
automated processes that we are viewing externally from the decision making, then that's that's when we start having to ask ourselves how much of this conversation of consciousness is literally just bound up in presuppositions of our understanding of what it means to be you, right? And I think it's a little brash of us, honestly, to say that there's an argument that says that, uh, you know, starfish isn't necessarily conscious. It's just reacting to sensory inputs and data and, and whatnot. And then, you know, potentially moving only based off of the information that was given. And, you know, that's, that's what we do, really, if you think about it. If you were just shut up in a box and you couldn't have any communication with the outside world, not only would you not be able to demonstrate any sort of consciousness, but you wouldn't be able to act in any sort of capacity. So it doesn't matter if we locked you in, right? If you have you locked in syndrome, you went into a coma, but you were still fully conscious, still fully awake, able to process and everything. But there was no, your eyes were closed. You were blind and deaf and mute. And you just had to sit there. What's, you know, what... Would the outside world be able to demonstrate your consciousness? What is it like to be that? I mean, you can't even fathom what it would be like, especially the impact that it has on the mind. But that's another human being experiencing a world completely different from your own and still being very much alive, but lacking that input of information. And it doesn't make them less conscious. So to suggest that, it's a requirement either way is perhaps in itself one of the issues that we have. Because we think of conscious beings as being things that act, make a have a decision-making process of some sort. Like a conscious being is more than just like running a piece of code and having only one output. To be conscious is to look at it, to be able to interpret it, to be able to have potentially different outcomes depending on certain uh, situations or or. You know, like a conscious being can choose to sit in a math class and not pick up any of the information despite being told to. However, a robot, if you put it in a math class and said, learn calculus, isn't going to be able to to defy that unless you literally program the ability to inside of it. And at that point, it's not consciousness. It's just a, whether or not the ones or the zeros landed on that, depending on if you like randomized it or not. There's always some sort of pattern there. There's always some sort of predictability in a sense that you knew that was going to happen. When a conscious being, it's 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 up to what we, you know, again would typically call some like a free will. It's that that wild card inside of the the situation. But there are plenty of examples of things like that happening outside of just human beings and bats and complex mammals and dogs like we all agree dogs are are conscious uh, they may not have the capacity to be self-aware you know some of them do usually like if you see dogs that like bark at their own mirror until they realize there's not a dog there it takes them a while because they don't have that that intuitive idea of the self but it exists in a capacity. Their brains are wired up to do it. However, there are other mammals that are not able to do this. And there's a lot of different theories as to why this is. But we still wouldn't call them non-conscious beings. So we can already eliminate the idea of the requirement of the self as a need, like a, a presupposition of, of consciousness. So you see what I'm saying here? Like we're tearing down a lot of a lot of things that if you just ask anybody on the street, like what is consciousness? And I'm throwing a lot of words at you here. So, you know, if you guys have any questions, just let me know. But 
we're we're taking these what when a normal person would say, hey, what's consciousness like? Are you conscious? Is this conscious? Why is it conscious? And they just talked about it. They're gonna have a lot of presuppositions that are not necessarily really based in any sort of rationale. And if we use those to start tearing these things down and we use counterexamples, we can show that these are not necessarily rules more than they can be generalized guidelines. And they work well to an extent on, again, mammals, complex organisms, things like that. But once we start getting lower and lower to try to find this root consciousness, the when does matter become alive or awake, as some people would say it, you know, is it a molecule? Is it like a protein? Proteins are a lot like computers. I have a hard time going with that one. What about, what about, uh, okay. So Jeffrey asks, what about dreams? So dreams, your body may be, so you're in an unconscious state, right? So this is an interesting way of looking at this because this is very, it's a very interesting part of how human beings and actually all creatures operate is it obviously this is like a toggle switch so this is not something that is like a natural it's like a fundamental characteristic of you it's like something you can't take away right it's like you know i have this dna like these are fundamental characteristics of me as a human being as long as no one manipulates my body or whatever there are situations like natural causes, situations like sleep and things like that, where your body can just flip the switch off and the lights go out, right? Now you have dreams, you have experiences, um, but they aren't they aren't you having. They're they're like made up. They're it's it's a, consciousness doesn't necessarily isn't really required for that. It's like a video playback, right? And you may be able to have like a lucid dream where you interact with these things, but that's more of an interaction between the conscious self resisting the urge to be put to bed than it is the necessarily the conscious self persisting inside of that. Cause if you, if you just go to sleep and you don't have a dream and they hit that light switch, that means the brain did its job pretty much. It means that you went to bed, you're, you shut down, the body took over a fully automated process that you had absolutely no control of, which by the way happens all the time, every waking moment of every hour of every day of your life or, or not, or, and that, that this is a, this is something that you not only have to do, you could, you could argument that you, you could make an argument that you, you could find somewhere out there, a creature that is conscious, that doesn't sleep. I'm not aware of any, I have also not looked in to see if there is one. Um, but most things either have some sort of sedimentary state if they get much lower down where it may not be asleep because there isn't really necessarily a way to check and see like, hey, is the pulse lower? You know, like, how do we find out if this guy's asleep or not? It's a, it reaches like a sedentary state put on by automated processes that say, hey, it's time to digest food or it's time to rebuild muscles or it's time to do these things and you need to stop so we can do this. So we have all, all of that. And Jeffrey says it's almost an uh, ab different state. It, it is. It's it can, well, it can be because, like I said, if when you're dreaming, yeah, sure. If we're just talking about sleeping in general, I would say you know it, it can be. And dreaming, it, dreaming is in is a showing of of consciousness to some extent. Though there is also the the angle that whenever you're in a dream and you're not aware that you're dreaming, 
it's your brain feeding you this information in an environment that doesn't have any context to it existing which is actually a really crazy way of thinking about it because if you're if, you know most of us don't really think like i'm in a dream while we're having a dream unless you attempt to have a lucid experience or end up having a lucid experience and most people wind up waking up from that because of how jarring it is unless you've like trained yourself to know what to do which is a difficult process then you know most of the dreams i have and other people's experiences is you think you're actually there with no context it's usually just pop you're in the dream you are observing what's happening and the idea that we don't remember most of the dreams that we have also brings up the idea of are we just playing back like a daydream we had in our head essentially and you know i mean like a daydream now i could sit here and i can imagine a scenario and i could just watch it play out me biking you know down a down a nice road with the sun setting and the beaches on my right i'm in galveston i got the lights here you know the my favorite crab shacks on the left uh actually let's go by my favorite pizza place which is a little bit further down the road i can change that scene in my head in an instant so i don't you know is it is that even really is, it, is there any kind of consciousness i mean yeah like i changed it sure but like let's say i didn't i was unable to i was asleep i didn't realize it was happening it seems more like I'm just watching a video that was cooked up. Like if we could one day develop an AI that could randomly generate a video based off of videos that you have on your computer, right? And just play it to you. You know, I mean, what's, what's to say that that's any different other than your inability to manipulate it in some circumstances. And then you could just go in and, and change it. No doubt. Uh, I thought about this because I had a dream. I was at the beach. I was never, I was uh, never there ever, and when I woke up, I was upset. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's pretty crazy. So we're getting to the point now where we start having, especially when we talk about humans, where we have like, oh, well, I, you know, obviously I'm a conscious being because I can manipulate these things in my life. I can make these choices. And so I think this is a good time to pivot over to the topic of free will, which is really where like people can say like okay you know let's say like blood cells are conscious whatever like let's say i mean it doesn't affect me right free will is something that i have wrestled with for a long time uh, you know i brought up sam harris earlier i don't agree with most of his political philosophy or social philosophy or ethics or really i mean most of that stuff i think some of his arguments are great i think some of them suck but one thing he's always got me on and i shouldn't be surprised this is a man who's a philosopher and a neuroscientist is the conversation about free will because i we most of us in this liberty movement have said for a long time that free will is like a fundamental unalienable characteristic of being a human being if you have nothing else you have the choice right that's kind of like the joke um there's a pretty good chance, and by pretty good chance, I mean I'm pretty much convinced that that's not true. And I know that there's all, like, I bemoaned it for years. I never thought I'd get to this point where I just have to admit it. But I don't have a good enough argument against the idea that free will is just a, sim, just a, a veil over our, our conscious mind to help us interpret what is happening inside of our body. That, that I can't sit back and say like, no, it's not that I'll come up with a solution eventually. 
I've been, I've been, this is something I've been thinking about for like two and a half years now. And, you know, maybe I'm not the right guy to do it, but from the rationality and what we've been talking about so far, we're going to get into how these things relate. I don't, there's, there's not, there's not any information to suggest that we are fully autonomous beings of free will. And this is really when we're going to start after we get done talking about this, why this is the case. This is when we're going to start talking about why this is important to the liberty movement. And so I just like to clarify before I get into this, just because my particular perception of free will has changed does not mean that anything I think about Ancapistan or, or my personal libertarian philosophies have changed. Um, you know, I'm not leaving the movement. That's ridiculous because whether or not free will is even a part of the equation, there are plenty of other parts of libertarian ethics and philosophy that make it the more preferential ideal over or uh, society world organized living you could say over other other forms so like it, it just because you may not have free will doesn't change the fact that taxation is theft and property rights are a part of being you right that's that does none of that changes that so let's just press now that i've kind of tried i've tried to disarm the topic as well as possible because i know a lot of people have a lot of feelings about this i know i did i do Still, I mean, it's, I still don't like it, but this is where I'm at. So we have talked about how, let's go back to the consciousness conversation really quick. So we've gone from, from bat to, I think it was mouse to worm to ant to, you know, uh, what was it? Aphid to, you know, we protozoa to blood cell, you know, all these different, these different tiers of, of, of beings. And we've all kind of agreed that, okay, well, what they do is they take input and they push it out to the rest of the world. But so a lot of people would say, oh, well, they're not conscious because there's not necessarily like a conscious decision-making process going on there. Oh, Matthew's here. Uh, he said, hey, what's up? I had no idea you did this on YouTube too. <laughs> yeah, man, I've been doing this on YouTube for about uh, a month now, but where I was going, it's super low delay too, which is really nice. You guys are like two seconds behind over there. But what, it, so what I was getting into is that we can, you know, go down all of these tiers and we can say that, you know, okay, well, let's stop at a virus, right? Like, let's pre even pretend that a red blood cell or a protozoa can experience consciousness. You know, a virus, no, it's literally just packets of DNA inside of a shell that react to a certain conditions in their environment. They attach the cells, like there's no decision-making process going on there, yada, yada, yada. Well, what if I told you that it's pretty likely that it's the same thing going on in, in your head, in my head, in our heads, and that that means that that's not a fair distinction to determine where consciousness comes from. So there are a lot of different ways to talk about this, but the easiest one, the two easiest ones in my opinion, are uh, patients with brain tumors. Uh, actually, how about this? How about we add another one? Patients with any developing uh or or late onset developing i don't know they weren't born with this uh mental condition like say they are traumatized into psychosis or something like that you know or they are developed dementia as they get older or alzheimer's all of those fit in the same category in my opinion though the though the causes may be different the results are are the same there's a, a change in a a differentiation inside of the mind hey what's up man um we have and, and, and then the first, the first one that we have is sp split brain patients. 
And I know you guys have probably heard this before. And if you haven't, I'm about to blow your freaking mind. So there is a certain medical procedure that can be done where they separate the left and right hemispheres of the brain. And there is no more communication between the left and right hemispheres, but they can still both communicate down into the body, right? Um, there's, there's the, the, those neural connections that the brainstem has with the left and right hemisphere do not go like a crisscross. They don't, they don't shoot back up and around. Those are just for direct input and output of data to those environments. It's like imagining if you set like a fiber optic cable next to something and connected it into other things, it's not going to transmit data to the two things next to it, just where it's meant to go. So the, now <laughs> this is. This is crazy. This blows my mind every time I hear about it. But split brain patients basically show that there are two consciousnesses operating inside of the same being. And because of whether it's evolutionary factors or just our mental inability to comprehend this even happening is that we, we, we our minds will rationalize this. So, for example, perception is dealt with the left side of the brain or sorry, whichever side it is. Basically, we'll be doing this by hands because this is how I remember this. And again, I'm sorry. I'm not a neuroscientist. But so basically, you're, we'll say your left-hand side and your right-hand side, right? So you patients will have a blindfold put on them. And I'm pretty sure it is mirror, the same side. It could be mirrored. But so I'm just we're just going to do this by hands for the sake of being accurate. Um, so they'll put a, a blindfold on a person. And we'll, they'll put like a Dr. Pepper can or something outside of their view. And they'll have them look straight at something and then they'll say, okay, you can look to your right, you know, you can look to your left and then they'll take the blindfold off or, or they'll put a blindfold on the other eye and they'll take it off and then they'll say, okay, you can look to your left, you can look to your right and they'll put the blindfold back on to the right side. And uh, they will then ask like, what item did we put in front of you? And they'll say, oh, I don't know. And it's like, can they'll ask again, can you show me the item and the left item? Well, the reason that they say, I don't know, I'm sorry, I skipped over this. This is important is because that part of the brain that processes uh, speech is that side of the brain that wasn't able to interpret the data of the can being put in front of it, which is crazy, right? That's that's crazy. I had no idea it was there. No idea. The other side of the brain is able to then, after being asked why the uh, person wasn't like, didn't know what was in front of them, if they could pick it up anyways, right? And then the other side of the brain will pick up the can and put it back down. So this person is, is as far as speech is, is concerned, is completely unaware that there is this can there. But another, another creature inside of them that is totally silent, has no way of communicating to the outside world other than perhaps using that hand um, is, is totally unaware or is, is totally aware of that cam being there. Sorry. I, this it's blowing my mind just talking about it. So I'm sorry if I'm tripping over my words a little bit. Matthew says there's an episode of house where he had a patient that had split brain surgery and the guy's left side basically had a mind of its own. So that episode of house is a bit exaggerated, but yes. So like people with split brain will often say that like they'll be reading a book and their left hand will close the book. And they'll be like, what? What was that? And that's their, you know, if you ask somebody, why did they close the book? They would say, I don't know. Because the speech part of their brain is controlled by the side that didn't close the book. 
Otherwise, it would have said, oh, I closed the book because I was done reading it, you know, that because it has a way of and sometimes they'll rationalize it. Right. They'll say and this is where originally the data was very inconclusive, but we ended up interpreting that because of the way that split brain person people act, they always say that, like, if they if for an example, they were told something that only the left side or, or, or the left side of their brain or the left hand side would know that say that Dr. Pepper can for an example. And then they were asked, uh, well, how did you know that was it? And it was, Oh, well it was a lucky guess, you know? And that is, these are the kind of rationalizations that our brain has developed over whether you believe it's millions of years of evolution or whether it was designed to do so, I'll leave that up for you. That's a conversation for a different show. Um, <laughs> the this is, this is a process that we have been given in one way or another through whatever means for survival. And it is a rationalization that is to keep us grounded in some sort of world that we can easily interpret. But that's not what's really happening here. And so I'm not going to tell you that your brain, when properly connected, is two different people. But when that information is, you know, there's nothing to suggest that you have two consciousnesses living inside of you right now. They both can communicate across each other as long as that that barrier is kept. They can properly communicate with each other. They share information. They both know what's going on. And they reach a consensus before you even know what's happened. However, when those are split, it shows you that there, the the difference in, in, in input of information between just the two halves of your brain can create two totally different people inside of your own body. It's like more like being strapped in with a mute Siamese twin than it is like being one person at that point. And that's horrifying to think about. But your mind is so effective at rationalizing it. I think the only issue that your left brain would really have is in interpreting or if it can even, and we have no way of demonstrating this again, maybe if perhaps we'll come up with a way to do so, but perhaps it is no longer able to verbally communicate. And that is in some way frustrating for it, or maybe they rationalize it too. Maybe it does the same thing. The right brain does is when it says, when you say something, the left brain says, oh, yeah, I said that because of this reason, but it didn't say anything. Just like the right brain, the part that is responsible for speech, didn't pick up that Dr. Pepper can. So how deep does this rabbit hole go? Let's let's leave split, split brain. Let's go on to people with like tumors and dementia patients and, and Alzheimer's. These are people who without any you know, without able to exercise their free will. Now you could say this is because the brain has been modified in some way, but you were not talking about destroying the brain and maybe except for the case of Alzheimer's that is in, in you know, dementia is more of like a chemical thing, right? But we still have the fundamental components still there. Do you I mean, could you say that someone who has like dementia has free will? Okay. Well, if they lost that ability to have free will because of a chemical imbalance, who's to say that that can't be, constantly going on is there maybe some middle ground that we've accepted as like normal human behavior that we've just associated with these inputs and outputs of information that we can then that we've then extrapolated as like this is free will right but when it gets off of that it's not free will anymore well what if i mean we either have see that's i have an issue with that and then most people have an issue with that you know 
the, just modifying the brain doesn't change what's going on because that means that like is it is it the chemicals that brought up consciousness and free will because if we've we precipitated earlier and i'm gonna now state that this is obviously not a true statement but if consciousness is is demonstrated by beings with free will of some sort then are they like is it like a requirement you know we start running into these conflicting definitions at that point and they, they don't work well they don't rationalize together in the slightest so where does that leave us you know what are, are they like no longer conscious beings because their minds have been messed with are they do they no longer have free will can they not make choices you know i'd find it very hard to believe that you know conscious or people with alzheimer's can't make choices they can make choices you see it all the time especially so i don't want to get too personal but if you guys have ever been around someone with alzheimer's before it starts really slow it starts really slow and it's usually the rationalization part they start losing pockets of memory but they remember big chunks of it or things like that or faces or people or maybe you being younger uh and they just start to like they understand what's happening to them and they start to rationalize it but um you know in and i can't speak for everybody but in my particular example it just became to the point where they just gave up trying and that was that was that a free will choice was that just like a, a, a response to keep their mental capacity in check now i agree that the split brain is a much better example of how free will may not be as clear-cut as you might think but i think these alzheimer's examples are also very pertinent and so a lot of people oh wow that is crazy i'm jeffrey says uh <laughs> My great grandmother has Alzheimer's. She still has a free will to call me a jag off. That's funny. Uh, she thinks I'm my father. My son is me. Wow. Yeah. See, that's why I was talking about the big pockets of, of information missing. And some people will try to rationalize through that. And despite perhaps even knowing what situation they're in, but, um, moving on from there, there's a specific example that is used often by Sam Harris. And I'm going to use here that isn't in the book, but it is, uh, what you know uh let's say someone goes off commits a massive shooting right and then it turns out that they had no criminal record before they'd done nothing wrong in their entire life but they had this giant tumor growing in the side of their head right and you remove the tumor and you know they're just they're just crazy they're off their rocker you know they're they're seeing things blah 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 but you remove this tumor and then they're back to being the same person they were before, or maybe slightly different, but they're, they're back to the model citizen. They, you know, do everything they need to do to stay out of trouble, whatever, you know, do what, what do you, you know, what are you punishing at that point? I guess. So like, we can all agree here. I think that there has to be some sort of reparations for what happened, whether it's to the vic, like to the victim's families or whether it's, you know, just like, I mean, cause I, I think when you start talking in terms of like, oh, this person has to be punished, it's like, what do you punish at that point? And this is not something that's just like out there. This is, you know, these, these are things that happen. These are, you know, not necessarily like shooter goes on a big massive rampage. They remove a tumor, but there have been people who were completely normal members of society. I don't remember which shooter it was, but he had a giant tumor in his head when they did the autopsy on him and they were like, Ooh, man, this could have caused the dude to go crazy. Right. And these are forces outside of your control that you have no control over. Like you, you don't even have the faintest bit of control over. So as far as you know, whatever kind of 
will was going on inside of his head, whether it was free will or, or modified free will, or however you want to say it, like if the tumor turned his free will switch off and turned him, like is free will what separates us from being bloodthirsty monsters? I don't think so. You know, like is, is the only reason I don't murder you because I choose not to? No, I think it's, like, no, I know it's more than that. Like there's more to it than that. Like there's even something like fundamental survival instincts. Like, there's a reason that these are exceptions. You know, it's not just because like you're going to go to jail. You know, that's not why people don't murder people. Most people don't murder people because they think it's wrong, like at a fundamental level. And I don't think that, you know, if you were completely shut off from the entire world, sure, maybe. But at that point, you wouldn't be moving. So, <laughs> or you would be under the will of something else. That wouldn't be you doing that. You as a person are gone. So, you know, this is... I wanted, you know, a little, a little, I would have liked to go a little bit more to free will, but we're at a really appropriate time to talk about now how this applies to the liberty movement. Because I love the non-aggression principle, but what the non-aggression principle doesn't do is tell you what happens whenever a guy shoots up your house and turns out he had a giant tumor in his head and it was completely against, you know, any sort of intentions that the guy would have otherwise had. The tumor's removed, he's fine. You give them the anti-crazy pill, they're no longer crazy, they're perfectly fine. What what right do you have to punish that person? It's not the same person anymore. And the nap doesn't have a way of responding to this. It just says, okay, well, he shot up your house, like, you can shoot him. Now, obviously, in post, it's probably not nap compliant to then shoot him for no reason at the, at the moment. And that may be an unpopular opinion. And we can talk about the nap again another day, but just for the sake of the argument, let's say you didn't shoot him in post. You just wanted like the, you know, you wanted blah, blah, blah for, you felt like that was a just, you wanted to take X amount of his assets as a, as a just snap response. He gets to live, whatever, you know, do you have a right to take those things? It's not the same person. It may be the same body, but that's not what this is about, right? Like, it doesn't matter. If it, if an alien abducted your body and, like, took control of it and used you as a puppet to, like, kill everybody, how is that your fault? It's the same freaking idea. Matthew says there was an episode of Star Trek Voyager dealing with that. The guy was from a society where the family of the victim decides the uh, punishment and IIRC, they still went through with the death penalty. Yeah, and that's... Mm, I mean... Like, in, in this situation that I've crafted before you, like, oh, hey, what's up, David? David's here. If, you know, let's let's just say you, Matthew, okay? Thank you for interacting in the comments, by the way. You know, if you got, like, zapped with some weird alien ray gun that made you just go absolutely crazy and kill a bunch of people, you know, say you killed your friends and whatever, oh, it was terrible, absolutely awful, right? People would expect you to be held accountable for that. But, you know, it wasn't you. And it was out of circumstances that, you know, you could even prove that you were zapped by an alien ray gun. Or you had the tumor. Or whatever situation you want to give yourself that you are completely out of your own mind, basically. You are not you anymore. Something has come in and modified you to the extent that you have lost yourself. That how do you punish that person? Like, I can't come up with, like, an ethically consistent argument. Because it's like, okay, well... We typically say in the non-aggression principle that, you know, like you, the non-aggression principle is about you defending your rights, right? 
So you could say, like, if someone's shooting at you, it doesn't matter if it's them or not. It's very unfortunate that they inhabit the same body as a, as a sane person potentially somewhere in there. But if someone's shooting at you, you can shoot them. You don't have to say, hey, do you have a tumor? Am I supposed to feel morally conflicted about you being, like, a crazy person, but actually you're a nice guy deep down? I don't know. Am I sp is this NAP compliant? Like, no, defend your life, obviously. Like, these are the kind of things that this is stuff we have to talk about, but... You know, at the same time, like in posts, let's say you, you neutralize them, right? They pulled a gun on you, whatever. They maybe they even hit you or whatever. But you, you just instead of killing them, you you knocked them out. You put them, you know, whatever. And then they put them into whatever locker room while everybody waits to decide what to do with them. Came for the deodorant and can spray. Very disappointed. Sorry about that, Spencer. And you, the 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 collective group decides that okay, well he needs to pay out a fine. Again, I ask, I pose the question, how is that ethical? How is that objectively and morally consistent? How is that consistent with libertarian principles? Libertarian principles say nowhere someone has to pay. That's not a fundamental characteristic of being in a volunteer society. So these are things that are outside of the bounds of our philosophy, which just shows why, as much as we love it, and I love it to death, there is more to being a libertarian than just political philosophy and, and maybe even social philosophy. There's, there's interaction with human beings that we, there is a, such nuance to it, which is why the non-aggression principle is so, so many what if scenarios. You can do theoretical nap violation scenarios literally until you die. You can come up with all sorts of crazy situations and how to respond to them. Cool. That's great. That's fine. We, you know, you can do that. We can do that. Whatever. But it doesn't, you know, again, it doesn't change the fact that there are still situations where the nap doesn't have a sufficient answer. Because the nap is off of a presupposition that each person chooses their own actions, which I don't care if it's free will or not. There is a, there is some kind of process of decision making going on, whether it is subconsciously or consciously that leads you to that situation. And you need to be held accountable for that. But if something influences your will enough to where it is no longer the self that is identified as you, then the nap doesn't cover that. The nap, it doesn't. Like, I mean, I've, I've tried to wrestle with this for a long time. Like, okay, if someone is completely out of their free will, like your rights come before someone else's. So if you have to defend your life, do it. But when the situation is neutralized and that person is no longer a threat or no longer the same person, you couldn't give them the death penalty in like Matthew's example. You couldn't ethically do that. Um... If I'm drugged by someone else's mishandling of their fentanyl, is that a nap violation? Yeah. Uh, like I said, we can talk all about the nap on on next week's yeah wait yeah next week's version of this episode. How about that? Um, I'll, we haven't done a nap episode in a long time. There are some talks about the nap, and I've kind of changed my stance a little bit on a couple things. But we'll talk about the nap this time next week, and because. This weekend, we'll be talking mostly about, like, news and stuff like that. So, um, yeah, but back to back to where we were going with this. It is, it is one of those things that, like, while I was reading this book and I was like, okay, I, I have to just accept this. Like, free will is most likely not a thing. It, there's, there's nothing to suggest that it is. There's plenty of information to suggest that it is, in fact, not. It is just a simulacrum that we use as 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 beings to interpret what's going on in our lives and then you close that 
like I would just have to I had to set the book down a couple of times and I was just like dang like this this poses huge problems because it is I will be honest with you it is so much easier and simpler just to say oh well free will bang you know or whatever like obviously that's an exaggeration but it's easier just to say that free will makes you responsible for every action in your life and that you have total control over all of that and if you wanted to stop being you know whatever like if you wanted to quit tomorrow you could like that's just not the case honestly it's it's really not and that changes the way that we have to interact with people and i know that may not be a comfortable thought for a lot of us it's not a comfortable thought with me it makes everything so much more complicated i really wish i could just sit here and tell you yeah it's all free will like you have total control of what you do but there's just nothing to corroborate that besides intuition and what have we been doing this entire episode we've been taking intuitions and we've been tearing them down and so you know the <laughs> this is the part of the the show that i was the least happy looking forward to because i love talking about this stuff but i don't like the conclusion that it, it comes to and you know i mean like i said i've been i've been thinking about this stuff for a long time I mean, some of the first episodes we did of this six months ago, I was talking about the same sort of thing. And, you know, it's just gotten to the point now to where I can't, you know, it's like, it's like you could sit back and say like, oh yeah, well, libertarianism is pretty cool, but you know, I mean, I'm just more of a Republican. It's what I'm familiar with, you know, whatever. But, uh, yeah, I like all their ideas. Like that's pretty much how I was with free will. It's like, I, you know, oh man, you know, this idea that there's no free will, there's so much information behind it, and there's nothing to suggest that my view is right, but it's what I've believed my whole life, and it makes me really uncomfortable to think that it's not true. But that's where we are. <laughs> At some point, just like when you're a statist and you go to being a libertarian, at some point you just have to say, like, I am wrong and I have to change. And so we could have, we could, oh, geez, I'm so sorry. We could disagree about whether or not there is actually this issue of, of free will. You know, you can disagree with me. I've tried my best to give some of the best examples and explanations. Maybe you're not fully convinced. I'd highly recommend you read the book. But it doesn't change the fact that we have some, we have some thinking to do. I don't have the answers for all other yeah i don't have answers for all these things that's not how republicans speak like yeah i don't know man it kind of sometimes sound like <laughs> okay now we're getting back to old school liberty after dark you know me just sitting up here and bashing people all day i just really think that there's we got we got some stuff we need to think about if we want this to be like a universal system that is adopted across the world now obviously each township can by contract law subvert pretty much all of this. If you want to sign a contract saying that you as, as an entity are completely and by all means entitled to uphold responsibility for any actions that are made by you and your body, that's fine. That's a really scary idea though. When you understand that there are situations that can turn that into a weapon against you, you know, I mean, you may have to, you may feel forced to sign something like that because there will probably most codes of law say something like that. Like U.S. Code of Law says that like your free will. Well, actually, there's stipulations that are you know can get you easier or off of punishment that that you know identify the fact that you 
can lose your free will, but if you never had it to begin with, then that, that single justification can be used for everything. And I'm not saying that criminal justice is dead. Everybody just can get away with what, oh, it was out of my control. No, there, there's a multitude of reasons of why you should be held responsible for your actions. But in specifically in situations where there is this transition between like one, like say the tumor example that we keep coming back to, or, you know, the anti-crazy pill or whatever that magically cures your psychosis or schizophrenia or whatever you had, you know, that's, that's kind of stuff's not covered. And then you're pretty much punishing, punishing an innocent person. And now there was a victim if hopefully if it's in Kapistan and then, therefore there was a crime, but there doesn't necessarily have to be a perpetrator. You know, I mean, there's a victim when a meteor falls out of the sky. Does that make it a crime? I don't know. I don't know. I mean, obviously the idea of it being a crime means that it was, someone was willingly violating your rights or, an agreed to term of some sort contract law in this case, but you know, I, I'm, I'm being facetious a little bit, but if, if we are truly unconscious or not unconscious, if we are truly beings lacking of free will, what is the difference between someone stealing your wallet and, you know, a rock falling from space? Like it was just being acted on by other forces. Didn't really have any, any way to avoid that. I think, yeah, and, and this is where you get into a lot of stuff about, like, mindfulness, and we can go way deep into this rabbit hole. The furthest I really want to go is by talking just a little bit about panpsychism and some of the interesting things about that. Not that I am a panpsychist by any situation, by any, any means. I'm extremely skeptical of panpsychism, but I find it incredibly fascinating because of its presuppositions about the world. There's an article titled... Uh, panpsychism is crazy, but it's also most likely true. And that is pretty much, I'm, I'm, I don't think I'm quite there to the point of saying it's almost likely true, but I think I'm, I'm at the point now to where I have to accept the fact that the world is not as we necessarily believe it to be whenever it comes to things like consciousness and free will. And for me, that means there's a lot of open questions that need answering. And, you know, there are very extreme forms of panpsychism that are non, not even remotely scientific or rationally based, like your neighbor who thinks that they can, like, communicate with the jade stone that they wear around their neck and, like, it sends them, like, positive chakras through their, like, connected conscious. No, that's not, no, <laughs> that's not it at all. But uh, panpsychism is basically, if you want to talk about the, the philosophical, the, you know, actually like thought about rationalized panpsychism, which I think needs a rebranding really bad. It's a terrible name. It just sounds so mysticist, you know, mysticist. It's just not, it doesn't sound scientific, but that's what it's called. Um, it's this idea that we asked or way earlier in the show, probably about 40 minutes ago, at what point does matter become awake? And, we don't have a very good answer to this question. And so there's this theory, an operating theory, that consciousness is actually a fundamental property of matter. Now, people are going to be like, whoa, what does that mean? Okay, step back for a second. I know this sounds freaking crazy, but let's remember here that we have 
things called this thing called light that acts as both a particle and a wave. Okay, so <laughs> there's crazy things in the universe. All right, we have we have crazy things happening all the time. So let's let's just think about this for a second. So if we if let's let's assume and you I'm, you may not be convinced on me for this, but for the sake of this conversation. Let's just assume there's no such thing as free will. It's just your brain interpreting the input of sensory information and making a decision and then relaying it to your conscious mind as this is what we're doing and come up with the justification for it, which is the common, most common in theory, uh, end theory of, of how free will operates and why we perceive it to be the way that it is. Um, but, you know, let's, let's there's a very common example and we talked about this earlier with like the protozoa and we said okay maybe a protozoa is conscious it can it can input information it can make a decision based off of this this that and the other now besides like let's take the ability of the protozoa way to move let's really only give it the uh, ability to consume something or to spit something out right like that's the only two things it can do so it can open up its walls to take in nutrients and it can open them up to spit nutrients out. Okay, it has like two functions, right? Let's look at something like a thermostat. Um, what does a thermostat do? Thermostat is a pretty simple machine, a little computer usually. Doesn't have to be though. Could be a mercury thermostat for all I care. But let's just say for simplicity that it is. Uh, what does it do? It has one function, two functions actually. It takes in information from the outside world. In this case, it takes in the information from the kinetic energy of particles in, in our universe, in, in the localized area specifically, not the entire universe, but it, it sort of does. But it takes that, and then it outputs information, right? Now, it was, sure, it was created to do that. It was designed to do that. Okay, cool. Well, if we piece the protozoa together, you know, little, little piece by little piece, and it, it popped into life, and it was exactly like a protozoa, does that make it not conscious? Let's say we cloned a human. It's completely made like in a, in a tube. Nothing about it was, was naturally created, you know, and it, and it wakes up and it's, oh, I'm alive. Is that not a conscious being? Hmm. Does it have to be naturally occurring to be conscious? Does it have to be a biological function to be conscious? Not based off of the terms that we've come up to at this point. Not based off of the conversation we've been having. It doesn't have to have some sort of will external to its own. So <laughs> this is this was really like when I got to this point, this is about halfway through the book, I think. Whenever they start talking about panpsychism. And I was just I'd never even really read about this stuff before. I knew about it as like, you know, like the Ooh, I'm a panpsychic. Let me communicate with the rocks to tell them who your wife's cheating on you with, you know, stupid stuff like that. Or like, oh, you know, I can communicate with trees and talk to my plants and everything. Even though plants are a really interesting argument, it's something that we may determine as not conscious, but actually are probably conscious. But it really puts us in a, in a pickle here. It really puts us in a pickle. And, you know, maybe it doesn't. Maybe it doesn't bother you, honestly. Um, no, it totally shatters my worldview and totally destroys the understanding that I have or had of what the world is. And I'm not saying that thermostats are conscious 
only that based off of our operating definition, there's nothing to say that it isn't, you know, if we take that protozoa as an example, you know, I mean, we can measure what's going on inside of it and say like, okay, well, this is what's happening. We can measure what's going inside of a thermostat and say, okay, this is what's happening. These are all natural processes inside of an artificial unit. You know, there's nothing unnatural about a mercury tube being hit by kinetic energy and then and raising up, you know, there's nothing unnatural about that. Or I think it's, yeah, mercury thermometer. Yeah. I think I've used like two of those in my entire life. <laughs> but that's basically, you know, we're talking, I mean, it's crazy to think about, but it works really well with those simple things. It's there. It'll be, it would be a consciousness completely unlike anything you would understand. Again, consciousness is not universal across all things. There's not a blood cell going around in your body singing like, oh, I love that song by Beyonce. You know, like just hanging out, having a good time, whatever, talking to its buddies. Oh man, I got to go get dinner over at, you know, the right bicep or later and, you know, drop off some sugar because I owe it to him. You know, <laughs> he loaned me some the other day. I was getting low on ATP, you know. It's not how it works. Um, they, it, it would be an experience that you could never imagine. You don't have the mental faculties to imagine what it would be like. And so a lot of people would suggest at that point, it doesn't matter. It's an irrelevant conversation to have. But if you want to talk about where consciousness comes from, we have to understand that there are going to be answers that are uncomfortable. And not only that, but if, if the quest is even remotely important to you, because like, say one day we develop an AI and you want to figure out if it's conscious or not, we can program an AI that is convincing enough to pass the Turing test. We can. We can program everything into it. But that doesn't make it conscious, right? Or at least we don't think it does. Is the idea of a conscious AI a lot simpler than we originally imagined? And what could that potentially mean for us? You know, are we attributing too much of consciousness to this higher level power that we don't understand that we're underestimating what consciousness is or what precipitates it? Precipitates it. I'm sorry. Mm. I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. Honestly, if I did, I would tell you. I would preach it at the top of my lungs. I would be talking to all sorts of people. But, uh. If a thermostat can experience consciousness because a single-celled organism with no ability to contact the outside world and only can input and output information can both experience consciousness in theory, why couldn't a sophisticated enough com computer program? Does it have to have biological processes? What if they are experiencing some form of consciousness that we don't understand? Does it matter? Probably not. No, probably not. This whole episode is pretty much a big, besides the free will, <coughs> besides the free will part, which I wanted to talk about consciousness because it is intertwined with free will, but they are not necessarily, or they're not mutually exclusive, but they're not exactly like hard linked together either. Um, but, you know, I wanted to set up the whole consciousness topic because I think it makes it a lot easier to then make the assertion that like free will is, is probably not real, almost certainly not real. And then to talk about it from there, but I could have started with that and then just worked everything off there. But I think it's a much easier argument to make after you look at what consciousness is and we go off of that initial argument that we made. But, 
Um, you know, besides like criminal justice and nap and just interacting with people socially, like, you know, this is something I haven't really started doing yet, but if you think about what, like, would that change your interactions with people? If you understood that processes out of their control were leading to the reactions that they were given, then would that change your interactions with people? If they, if they hadn't trained themselves, there's, there's an argument that suggests that believing that free will is real is bad because it doesn't allow you to train your brain and understanding that free will isn't real can help you essentially come up with like a, not necessarily free will, but people can change, right? Because just because there's in a free will doesn't mean that people can change. People can change. People can make choices. Now, whether it's a subconscious choice being relayed to your conscious mind is a totally, like I said, that's a, that's a conversation we've had for the last hour, but people can change. People can make choices. We are flexible beings. This is part of, of what it is to be human. So you can train yourself to make the right choices at the right times. Some of us suck at that. I'm, I'm right there, right? Like my gut sucks. So I have to do a lot of training for myself. This is how we learn. This is how we change. This is, you know, why still things like this are important. Uh, you don't just get to sit idly by and say like, well, nothing, you know, free, free will's fake. You know, I guess I'll just do whatever then. We have to understand the fact that we can train our brains, but if people don't have that mindfulness of being able to step back and say like, I, we can change. We just got to work on this. Um, you almost have to think about it as like a relationship between you and your subconscious as if they are two different entities, because our brains are going to put us in this framework of being beings of free will. That's how we evolved. That's how we exist, right? You've thought about that for the last, some of you decades, multiple, multiple decades, um, me only a couple decades, but you know, <laughs> multiple decades of your life has been spent thinking that you are a being of free will and that's never going to change. There will always, you will always have that, that base level intuition and desire to say like, yeah, like that was, you know, I, I chose that, but you, you did as like a, a being, but not like as like a free will, if that makes any sense as a unit you did, but not as like a conscious free entity, um, not to overly complicate this scenario too much, but you know, I think that might, that, that has the potential to change some of my interactions in the future. You know, the next time someone's pissed off at me in the Kmart parking lot, maybe I'll be like, you know what? Maybe, you know, maybe they don't have the mindfulness to understand what's going on. You know, it, people who, people say this a lot who like meditate all the time. I'm, I'm not a big meditator. I like to spend my time doing things. Maybe that's a mistake on my part. Maybe I should. Um, but it's, you know, there's, they talk about this mindfulness of where you can just sit back and like analyze what's going on with you. And I think I'm just, you know, get that weird, like autist brain where I can just step back and be like, okay, what is happening with me right now? And usually it's a little bit too late, but, uh, you know, I'll like snap at somebody for no reason. Like at work yesterday, like somebody came up to me and I was just like, Rawr, you know, for no reason really. And I was like, you know what? That was like totally uncalled for. I think it was just, you know, it was just, I just had like an initial reaction and to the situation and I wasn't thinking about it at all, but you know, that's, 
that takes a certain level of mindfulness because it's way easier to just roll with it, right? Like there wasn't like a free will choice really built into that. That was a lack of mindfulness. If anything, that response that I had was like the opposite of what I would have done if I could have rationally just sat back and thought about like, what is the best thing for me to do here? You know, <laughs> what should I do here? Not bellyache and be moan about it. And it wasn't that big of a deal, honestly. It really wasn't. But it was just something I noticed reflecting on what I've learned and what I've been talking about. And yeah, so that's something to keep in mind, I guess. Ooh, that one was a doozy. I pretty much talked for like an hour and 15 minutes straight, which is funny because the book is like two hours long and I promise I didn't like plagiarize super hard or anything. I only used a couple examples. Everything else was me. So, <laughs> um, but all those examples are from other places anyways. So it's all good. Um, yeah, so that's, that's where we're at on that one. Uh, let me see if I missed any of the Facebook comments. There's a good chance that I did. And I'm very sorry if I did. Um, it was tons of fun tonight. But I am done with the lecture. So if you guys want to talk about any specific things, if you've got any questions, comments, concerns, clarifications, something like that, um, now is the good time to go ahead and, and put those out there. Okay, I didn't miss anything. Cool. Ah, uh, while I do this, excuse me, <laughs> and drink some water. Seems like everybody's pretty copacetic, or they're either listening in the background, so either way, that's fine. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and do the outro. Thank you guys for coming. I really enjoyed this. I hope you guys learned something. I know I've learned a bunch over this last two weeks, really, and it is fantastic to be able to sit here and talk about it with you guys. What... um if you enjoy the show, you can like us on Facebook. You can go subscribe to our YouTube channel. If you like it even more, you can join the community group and be a part of upcoming decisions. We have podcasts available on every, pretty much every major podcast distributor. Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Stitcher. What is it? What other one? Podbean or something? I can't remember. There's like 10 of them. I just, you know, it's out there. It's everywhere. Um... If you want it, you can find it. It's Liberty After Dark, just like the title of this live stream is. Go ahead. If you want to go listen to it and you like it, go ahead. Rate it, please. Helps helps get exposure out there. And uh, if you really enjoyed the show and you want to help support us for as little as a dollar a month, you can join the Patreon. And everybody else or everybody who is a part of the Patreon, I can't thank you enough. And as part of the Patreon rewards for this month, special thanks to August G for continuing to support the show and what we do here. Uh, it helps a lot cutting down costs of things like better internet and, you know, buying lights and camera equipment and microphones and stuff like that. So it's awesome to see the support and I hope you guys really like it. All right. Well, thanks for trying out the YouTube stuff guide. We had a lot of good interaction on YouTube today. That was awesome. I'm super glad because I think it's the superior streaming platform, honestly, but, uh, thank you also to those of you watching on Facebook, my loyal fans. So I will see all of you again on Saturday, 9 p.m. Eastern for the next episode of Liberty After Dark. Expect this episode to get edited down eventually. It's a lot of words. I got I to gotta listen to all this thing back and, you know, cut out all the weird blanks and whatnot. So, all right. That's all I've got. Y'all take it easy.